Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Beach Blanket Babylon was a San Francisco musical tour de force. It was the longest-running musical review in the world at one point, delighting locals and tourists alike. No, the locals would come and see it about 10 times and bring people. It never was the same show twice. Joe Schumann-Silver is the producer and owner of Beach Blanket Babylon, which closed in 2019 after more than 40 years on stage. The show was known for outrageous parodies of pop culture figures and current events, but even more for its fantastic costumes, especially the hats. The show's creator, Steve Silver, came up with the idea to adapt the production to the contours of the North Beach theater space he had in 1974. It was narrow but very high. So in order to fill the space, he started building hats. Really small at first, and they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There were hats that featured wreaths and decorated Christmas trees. An actor playing Martha Stewart had a towering headpiece crowned with a pie, flowers, and a frying pan. One hat weighed 300 pounds. Many are iconic, like the massive hat sporting San Francisco landmarks. The hats do come apart. Thank God. A Bay Curious listener wanted to know what's going to happen to all those fabulous hats and costumes now that the show is closed. Joe says some are going to the Smithsonian, others to local museums. To preserve Steve Silver's legacy and the legacy of Beach Blanket, which is one in the same, quite frankly. There is your wandering one saying, I wonder no more. Beach Blanket Babylon may be San Francisco's most famous show, but Bay Area performers are constantly pushing art forward, and they don't always get recognized for it. I'm Katrina Schwartz, and it's Arts Appreciation Week on Bay Curious. Today, we're taking on the tension between creative freedom and commercial acclaim in the theater world. And we'll dig into the far-reaching musical legacy of Mills College. It's a fun one, folks. Stay with us. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. 
you can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Alan Klein grew up in the East Bay going to theater. He loves it. He even majored in theater in college. I, before the pandemic, usually went about once a week. And you start to see the same faces. He's noticed an insularness to the theater-going crowd, especially at the more experimental theaters. He doesn't get it. The Bay Area has four Tony Award-winning theater companies. We have notable stuff happening all over the Bay Area, and, and yet I don't hear about how proud we are to have some of the best ballets and symphonies and theaters and all of that. It's puzzled him for years. He wants to know... Why isn't the Bay Area known nationally for its performing arts? It's a hard question to answer, but we're going to give it a go. I called up the San Francisco Chronicle's theater critic, Lily Janik, to get her perspective on Alan's question. I think there is some validity to that question, and I came up with a few hypotheses as to why that might be the case. First, we have a lot of competition for tourist interest. We have some of the most beautiful natural scenery anywhere on Earth and some of the best food and wine. Second, there's another kind of attention, and that is news attention. We have big tech, so they kind of dominate how many headlines can be about the Bay Area in other media outlets around the country and around the world. Third, though, we as a local art scene need to redefine the terms of our success. So if a show that originates here is only truly a big deal, if it ships to and then succeeds financially in New York, then New York will remain the center of theater. A lot of famous shows got their start in San Francisco. Wicked, for one. Legally Blonde is another huge Broadway success that started here. And in 2019, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, which premiered at Berkeley Rep, was nominated for a Tony Award. I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go if I have I recognize fully my own complicity in this arrangement. If a show created at Berkeley Rep gets picked up by Broadway... You'd better believe that I'm going to report that news. But at the same time, I recognize that by doing so, I'm feeding into the same cycle I just described to you. So what's the solution? I'm not sure. Another issue Lily brings up is that San Francisco's theaters may not be reflecting the tastes of the entire population here because they're dependent on current subscribers and donors who tend to be older and white. In our country, we just don't give the arts the kind of government support that could truly make theater of, by, and for the entire population. And that means that we're producing the kind of shows that don't make the entire Bay Area feel a sense of ownership and pride in its art scene. I'm really excited by the fact that Sean San Jose has taken over the Magic Theater. A lot of this goes back to just from the bigger structural ways that people look at it. 
This is Sean San Jose, the new artistic director of the Magic Theater in San Francisco and one of the founders of Campo Santo. He says figuring out why the Bay Area isn't more well-known for performing arts depends on perspective and who defines success. It's all elitist classes, white supremacist-rooted thinking about what is classic, what is good, what is recognized, and clearly a place like the Bay that is historically, culturally, aesthetically so mixed culturally, so rooted in the other, quote-unquote, that we're much more interested in plotting our own piece of land rather than sort of uh, creating something so it fits into something to be accepted. Sean says artists come to the Bay Area to push the limits. They're interested in blurring the lines between types of performance to tell stories that speak to this community. Someone like me or someone like our group, Campo Santo, we're talking about a thing that responded to hopefully, you know, neighbors and residents. That's the goal. Once you hit that, then you've hit your gold. He rejects the idea that good theater flows from New York or London to the Bay Area. If anything, he says that attitude is just more gatekeeping. The real thing that they're saying is like, no, I don't think we're interested in your Chicano body. I don't think we're interested in your gay neighborhood. I don't think we're interested in your mixed population. Well... That's who we are, and that's who we're going to be, and that's who we're going to speak to, and those are the stories we're going to tell. One theme I've seen reporting this episode is that the Bay Area is an incredibly creative place, and our artists are often way ahead of the trends. That gets us to our next question, which comes from Sarah Russell. She wants to know more about the music program at Mills College. In March, school administrators announced the college would close due to financial difficulties. They said the last degrees would be handed out in 2023. But things are shifting every day. Most recently, Mills President Elizabeth Hillman said the college is in negotiations to become a satellite campus of Northeastern University. We talked to KQED senior arts editor Gabe Moline about the musical legacy of Mills College. The music program at Mills is legendary. Some just big names came out of there. Tell us a little bit more about these folks and what they're known for. Dave Brubeck, Steve Reich, Lou Harrison, Terry Riley, uh, Pauline Oliveros. These are not household names, you know, but they have an outsized influence on music at large. Dave Brubeck, uh, famous jazz artist. Uh, you know the song Take Five. Um, Anthony Braxton, Roscoe Mitchell, also uh, big jazz people. Um, but really, it was the electronic music that came out of Mills uh, and their Center for Contemporary Music that I think had a really big impact on music at large. Um, and those would be people like uh, Pauline Oliveros, Uh, Maggie Payne, and they developed modern electronic composition in a way that is revered in serious music circles all around the world. I mean, I think the best word to sum up Mills's approach to teaching music is possibility. It was a program where like a piano is on equal footing with an exhaust manifold, or maybe even less than an exhaust manifold. Students were just encouraged to do whatever to explore their imaginations. 
So if this music program really truly does shut down, that would be a huge blow to that young avant-garde composer who might have attended Mills. But what would it mean for music more generally? You saw uh, innovations at Mills really creep into popular music. I'm thinking Radiohead, their album Kid A. Uh, Wilco, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, the band Tame Impala that is headlining festivals this year. Um, Bjork certainly has toured with people from Mills College. Essentially, what Mills did was uh, manipulate electronics. And as a lot of music production has migrated to laptops, um, I hear it in a lot of hip-hop production, like Playboy Cardi. Some of the more jagged sounds of Kanye West. Um, and you hear it in pop music too, which is funny because Mills is the opposite of pop music, but, um, there was a big hit song a few years ago by Justin Bieber, Where Are You Now, that had this squeaky little kind of dolphin sound. And that sound, you know, could be traced back absolutely to people pushing and pulling tape through you know, old tape players at Mills. It's you're basically just taking sound and tweaking it and making it catchy and addictive and on the top of the billboard charts. It's almost like they were way ahead of their time then. Yeah. And that kind of progression does happen a lot in all practices of art. I find this all really interesting personally because I grew up in the Bay Area. I live in the East Bay. And obviously I knew Mills College was there, but I didn't know much about this incredible music program. And I guess I'm just curious if you have a sense for why they are better known among their neighbors. I mean, among folks that live in their backyard. Um, you know, I think the Bay Area likes to do really weird things and then give it to the world. I think we just like to innovate and then move on very quickly. And we're not typically good at telling our own stories or canonizing our own recent history. It's almost like we don't see it as our job to promote ourselves. We just like to be creative. And if the rest of the world catches up, cool. If not, we don't care. I like that about the Bay Area. So I know one big part of this conversation about what happens to Mills College and the music program is that it's been around a long time and it's been pushing the boundaries of contemporary music for years and years. And they have archives of all that stuff. The archive is the thing. You know, the archive, it just there's tapes, there's scores, there's instruments, there's synthesizers. There's a whole wing of John Cage's music there. Um, and it is going to be really crucial to keep that from being sold to private collectors, certainly, and ideally kept for students to access and to use. Gabe Moline is KQED's senior arts editor. A lot is still unknown about what's going to happen to Mills, including the fate of the archive. Faculty are pushing for a solution that doesn't mean full closure of the university. So stay tuned. Please go check out all of KQED Arts reporting at kqed.org slash arts. They cover everything from music to local visual art to cool performances that are happening around the Bay. And if you want to see Steve Silver's sketches of Beach Blanket Babylon characters alongside what they look like on stage, go to our website, baycurious.org. Our show is produced by Susie Racho, Olivia Allen Price, Brendan Willard, and me, Katrina Schwartz. Bay Curious is made at member-supported KQED in San Francisco. See you next week. 
Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.